This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's Daily Politics Podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Fraser Nelson. Well, Rishi Sunak is in Bali today for the G20 meeting, which is going to be quite a, an awkward one just in terms of the attendees, James. Fill us in. So this is the first uh, meeting at which a kind of senior Russian person is going to be present alongside leaders of, of the Western democracies that are supporting Ukraine. So Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, is going Vladimir Putin's place. There's already been all sorts of diplomatic kind of ructions about trying to avoid a photo with him in and how to handle his presence, especially because Lavrov has a reputation for being very kind of confrontational, trying to create kind of moments to, to kind of to, to, to assert Russia's self. If you remember that that press conference with Liz Truss before the invasion of, of Ukraine. But Lavrov has, appears to have been taken unwell when he arrived in Indonesia. The details of this are quite contested. But I mean, that is, that is a sign. That, but the big news out of Bali today is that President Biden and President Xi are meeting for the first time face to face. And I think it gives you a flavour of where world affairs now are. But the kind of US view is that they want to put in place guardrails in the relationship to prevent an accidental war, essentially. If that sounds very Cold War... It is because it is very Cold War. And I think one of the things we're going to see at this G20 is the US and China, you know, the further decoupling between the two of them and watching to see what countries such as Indonesia do as they, you know, because I think both the US and China are going to be pressuring their allies more to choose between them. Fraser, Sunak's going to be talking a lot about the global economic instability, which does also set the scene for this week's autumn statements, uh, which is going to be quite a tricky one and one the Conservatives would like to blame as much as possible on those global economic factors. How much mileage do you think he's going to, to get with that, both at the G20 and then when he returns to London? I think his his problem is, well, in a way, it's not really a problem because he's positioned himself as the doctor who's going to give you the bad news. This was partly why he lost the um, the election campaign in the summer, because he dined out a little bit too much on the fact that there's no real way out of this and anybody who says otherwise is lying. So now that he's now in number 10, he, he will, on a point of principle, be making a fairly grim prognosis, I think. I'd be very surprised if the economic forecast is and points to any sunlit up plans for him, which he will see as a virtue. I imagine his strategy will be to give the bad news now, and hopefully you'll swap that for some good news in one of the pre-election budgets. But if he is, as I suspect, um, backloading his cuts, in other words, he won't really reduce the spending limits that already exist, but he will cut spending after the general election. That makes for a rather interesting general election message. Normally, the Tories are trying to protect spending, so the Labour can't accuse them of cuts. This time around, I think Labour will be able to accuse them of cuts because they will be implementing some quite significant cuts. The only thing the Tories will have to hope for is that Labour themselves would have to implement cuts as well. So the election would be basically choose your cutter, as it were, Keir Starmer or Rishi Sunak. My assumption is that Labour will accept the government baseline. 
which is what they did after the mini budget. They they won't they won't accept all the measures, and they will have some things that they will do themselves. Like you know, for example, you know, uh, the Vera forms the non-dom status, all this you know, designed to to create some kind of electorally iconic extra funding for various things. But I think in terms of the broad spending envelope, they will accept it as Gordon Brown did in 1997, because I think Labour, the Labour Party is still traumatised by what happened with John Smith and the shadow budget in 1992, and how that took an election that Labour expected to win and turned it into one that returned a, a small Tory majority. So uh, my, my, my hunch is, and I think you can see this with Rachel Rees on Sunday, was saying, well, look, you know, we need to see the numbers from the OBR before we make any decisions. And also stressing a line that Keir Starmer has also been using, that we can't do everything we want to do in the first term because of a situation the Tories have left the country in. That, to my mind, sounds like accepting Tory the Tory spending envelope for the first few years of the next parliament. Fraser, that sounds like it's going to be politically very difficult for Labour in terms of its internal management as well, given... A lot of the headlines we're going to see later this week are going to be, you know, austerity 2.0. Labour was vigorously campaigning against austerity the first time around in the 2010 Parliament. Now, obviously, it didn't really work out for the party, given it lost the 2015 election. But it is going to be quite a quite a wrench for for a lot of its MPs, isn't it, to to accept those spending that spending envelope? Surely, it will be a wrench. But I imagine they'll adopt a an expression used in Scottish nationalist circles, wheesht for Indy, which basically means stay quiet about your criticisms of Nicola Sturgeon and think of the greater cause. Now, right now, Labour are by default set to win the next election. When you think about the battles that have been fought, the quite bloody political battles in this country over the last three or four months, almost every single bullet was fired from a Tory. Labour has been absent, and yet Labour is still 20 points ahead in the polls. 20 points. Now, sure, that's not 30 points like it once was, but it's still easily enough to win the general election. So if Labour just managed to keep themselves together, to not engage in a, a, a fighting, then they will be sleepwalking into Downing Street simply because voters have had so much of a Tory psychodrama that they can't take anymore. So that is the incentive for the Labour Party to go quiet on their criticisms of Keir Starmer if he takes the hug-them-close approach, as I imagine that he will. Now, we have absolutely no idea if Labour has got this self-discipline. But I think one of the, the Starmer's main achievements as opposition leader is to come up with a Labour Party which is a lot more coherent, a lot more cohesive than the one that he inherited. The work he's done here, I think, hasn't been particularly visible or spectacular. But you can see it in the way that, for example, if you look at the recent Labour Party selections, they're expected to get a hell of a lot more MPs at the next election. And I think in the last sort of 30 to 40 of those seats, the candidate selected has gone the way that Keir Starmer wanted it to go. So his progress harnessing the internal Labour machine I think is a little bit greater than he's generally given credit for. So it is possible that Labour do manage to maintain that discipline and win the election by default. Now, James, one element of the Tory psychodrama and certainly something that kindles in discipline like nothing else is immigration. And we've got Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, today signing a deal uh, with the French to try to cut down on channel crossings. Just give us a bit more detail on that. 
So this is a deal that has been in the works for a while. They've got to put a nice after Liz Truss said, and I don't think entirely seriously here, but I don't think Emmanuel Macron saw the funny side of it, that the, the jury was out on whether he was a friend or a foe. So this involves essentially more French patrols on the beaches in the Pas de Calais. Some British officials in French control rooms and vice versa to try and kind of improve intelligence and coordination about stopping these crossings. I, I think that what well, I think though it is worth, you know, it is a perfectly sensible incremental step. But I don't, I don't think even its, its biggest advocates would claim that it's suddenly going to stop the small boat crossings that are, are, are becoming such a political problem. And I think you're now seeing a kind of ripple effect from this, which is the numbers are now so large that you know, you've got hotels not just in Kent, but all over the country being taken over by this. And this is becoming a major kind of bugbear of, of Tory MPs. You had Robert Jenrick, the immigration minister, saying at the weekend that, you know, that he accepts that this is now another kind of pull factor and that they need to kind of find some more standard accommodation to put, to, to put people in because, you know, otherwise this kind of anger and distortions over taking over whole hotels is, is only going to grow. I think we should bear in mind that the the scale of this deal is pretty small. I mean, Britain's upping the amount it pays France to um, from about fifty five million to seventy million quid, significant, but it's not that big a deal. And there's going to be significant, I think, a forty percent increase in the number of officers patrolling the beaches. But the French already do a pretty good job at intercepting the boats before they leave, and still. We found out that almost a thousand uh, migrants arrived here via, via the boats on Saturday. So uh, I think that this will be an improvement, but I don't think it will be a game changer, to put it mildly. This I still rank this amongst the top threats to Sunak's premiership. And there was a very interesting poll in the Sunday Telegraph about saying that one in four voters would be interested in a new party led by Nigel Farage. Now, that was um, simply because frustration over this is absolutely huge. I think failure on the borders demonstrates the Tories are seriously vulnerable to a political attack from the right. Now, if Nigel Farage doesn't want to do this, right now he's very happy as a GB News presenter, then there's a potential for an uglier, more extremist party to emerge in British politics. So I think we're at a rather vulnerable point of our political cycle. And if the government cannot get on top of the situ- of, of a situation via deals with France or whatever else, then it might not be too long before we get another Nick Griffin figure, perhaps, trying to fill the vacuum and the demand which the opinion polls are detecting for a, a new party to the right of the Conservatives. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening.